The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, we're talking all about pizza in Naples, Italy. Plus, I share with my guest Fiorella Squalante one of my pizza crackpot theories. I'm glad I didn't say, no, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You were worried there for a minute. (laughs) Find out my theory about Naples pizza and the best places to get it. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the winemaker. John, you interrupted me. Sorry, do it again. One, two, three, go. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Bart, it's it's great. This is how cold openings are great. And I love how Bart and I are both, I think, in our wives' offices because our wives have the the day off today. Is that that what's going on for you, Bart? Well, I thought I was going to be sitting outside because um, it just works better. But... Yeah, it, it, this is. Let's get this straight. This is actually my office. Terry oh, okay. used to work. <laughs> Terry used to work in San Francisco, um, so but now this has become her office. Um, yeah. This is like in our house. This is the last bastion of things that are mine. Um, everything else of mine has either been you know put out in a closet, um, or uh, yeah, or, or or has just been uh, donated somewhere. So. Um, yeah, I take, I take this room kind of sacredly. So yeah, this, this used to be our guest room and then, you know, now it's Maria's office full time. So <laughs> result oh, yeah, is probably shot of our home bar. So there we go. <laughs> nice. Hey, you know what, what, what do you got on there? I'm kind of curious what you got on the top, top of the bar there. Uh, what are you guys drinking? Well, it's a bit depleted at this point. We've got some Japanese whiskey, yeah. uh, some Swedish gin, some Sonoma gin, a little Oban, a little 12-year Jameson. Ooh, yeah. Oban. Unfortunately, it's, yeah. it's uh, kaput at this point. Yeah. Yeah. We need to yeah. restock. <laughs> I think everyone's in the same boat. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we should mention, it is. you know, let's, let's say who we got on the show today. We've got Mike Schieffer and Kara Meriden, and they have a label called Fine Disregard, which, Bart, thank you for introducing us because... I had never had the wines before, and um, I can tell you I'm a little cloudy today because I had the semi on last night. Oh. I was planning on saving a little bit for the show today and ended up drinking the entire box <laughs> myself. That's everyone fantastic. Went to, everyone went to bed, and I kind of got in my man cave and opened up the bottle and was listening to a podcast uh, with a virologist on it, and next thing I know, an hour and a half had gone by, and... I, I was I was like this much left in it. I should save that for tomorrow. Did not happen. Lovely wine, by the way. And the aromatics, once that thing started to open up, were just beautiful. The texture on the wine was beautiful. And it's just rare to get a semillon. I'm personally, I'm a white Bordeaux fan. I'm a white Chateauneuf fan. I typically drink white wines. And that's why Bart made sure that I got the semillon. Um, but ju- just lovely wine. And so I'm, I'm happy that he uh, turned this on. Oh, thank well, you so and- much. And and I think Brian, like you said in one of our thing comments back and forth, is there's just not that much semi on up here, 
um, and not that many people. Um, I got a chance to work with some semi-on when I worked at Lasseter because we used to get some stuff from Monterosa. Right. Um, you know, I've had Hardy's um, semi-on. Um, now Morgan, I've had yours, but I but it, it really is yeah. limited. And, um, you know, yeah. we certainly want to hear about that, but could we first kind of start with where you guys are from and um, and kind of the starts of how you got in the business, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. I'll go first. Um, so I'm originally from Arizona. Uh, family's from Texas. I went to school in D.C. and lived out there for years. Uh, wine was not really a part of my life growing up. Uh, my parents drank Carlo Rossi. And that's why I used to always tell people, like, I love Chablis because I can still see that Carlo Rossi Chablis label. Um, Fast forward a few years after university, I was dating a French girl from Dijon who got me turned on to Burgundy. And that was that aha moment, like, oh, my gosh, okay, this this is wine. It's not, you know, the, the cheap jug wine that my parents were drinking. And I knew I wanted to get into the wine industry. I wasn't quite sure how to do it. I was... Uh, working at the Discovery Channel, I was a paralegal. I thought I'd go into you know law school and pursue that career. And uh, my former rugby coach and I were having a beer one day after a match. Um, just this really fantastic opportunity to sit down and talk together. And he asked me, "What do you want to do with your life?" And I said, "I, I want to get into the wine industry. I'm not sure how to do it." And he said, "Well, I just happen to have a friend who owns a chateau in Bordeaux, and I'll reach out to him." Nice. So, really, seriously nice. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always say I'd rather be lucky than good. And I ended up leaving the job at Discovery. I backpacked for about five, six months. And then I worked Harvest in 2008 in Bordeaux at the Chateau. And that was it. I just knew I was hooked. I, I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, the next Harvest was in Australia in the Hunter Valley. And that's the aha moment for me about white wine and Semillon, that those wines are just so singular. There's nothing else like them on the planet. And I, I knew like I wanted to make Semillon at some point. And when I eventually came to California, it was also through another one of those happenstance connections. A winemaker for BV asked me to come out and work harvest for them in 09. And I've been here ever since. So uh, that's kind of like the, a short, quick answer of how I got into the industry. Well, Mike, so two, does, two, how, sorry, two Bar- quick I, questions. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead, Brian. So I'm wondering how someone gets into rugby because for me, <laughs> it's, it's like cricket, right? Like we, we yeah. all know about it, but we generally kind of see it like in a movie, like in a movie where it's usually takes place in Europe or Australia and, and right. you see people like watching TV and they're watching a rugby match or they're watching cricket, but we, yeah. never, we never really see it actually like in our daily life. So how do you get into rugby? So that's another one of those chance encounters. My life seems to be a never ending string of them. I think Uh, when I was a kid, my dad took my brother and I to this big rugby tournament in Tucson called the Michelob Continental Rugby Classic. And he was a journalist. So he would get free passes. these things all the time. He had the two of us for the afternoon. He's like, what am I going to do? Okay. I'll take the kids to this tournament. That wasn't too far away from our house. And that particular year, the national teams from Canada and the U.S. were playing each other, and I'm watching this thing unfold, and I knew football somewhat, but I had no idea what was going on, but I just thought it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life, and I just knew I was going to play rugby at some point in my life, and that was it. That was from the early age. And there was Brian, you're so, 
You're so from Petaluma. I mean, <laughs> you know, of course, rugby is a world known in schools, but do. But besides college, like, do kids have, like, is there, like, a Pop Warner kind of thing for football? Like, for yeah. Rugby? Yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot of youth rugby now. There's a lot more than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there was no youth rugby whatsoever. Very, very little. Um, Northern California actually has some of the best youth programs in the country. Um, Sacramento and the Bay Area, really great high school teams. Um, D.C. has a few as well. I got into it at school. I captained the team and then I was playing for a men's team after I graduated. And that's where, you know, my coach and I made the introductions to wine, but um, the league I was in was called the super league. And we were, it was basically an attempt to get all the top clubs across the country together and play one another. And, you know, so that afternoon when I was talking to my coach, we had just flown back from uh, Denver. We had played a match out there. I I won't tell you the result. It was pretty ugly. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was, it's had a very outsized influence on my life for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I yeah, I just have no experience with rugby other than you know, randomly every once in a while in a movie, like I'll see I'll see people. Yeah. And I always wonder what the heck they're doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sometimes and, it's, and it's the ball. I don't get it. It's so cool, but I'm still. I think for eight and a half years we've been dating, and yeah. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> But it's there, pretty fun to watch. Sticker out there that says it takes leather balls to play rugby. Yeah. <laughs> so, whatever. There was, uh, <laughs> however you want to interpret that. Yeah. There's a famous shirt. Uh, give blood, play rugby. So. <laughs> nice. I like it. All so right, Mike, uh, I, I just I, I had to I had to know. So my question, Mike, was um, what um, chateau was it? And okay. did you speak French? Je peux écocher les langues, so I can butcher the language. Je peux écocher les langues. So the the chateau, there was two chateaux actually. Uh, the main chateau was in a place called Bourne, uh and it was called Chateau de Sur. It's now owned by Jackie Ma, a Chinese billionaire. Um, but they they also had a smaller, more garages property. That was in Saint-Emilion, uh, that was called Clos Cantignac. So we kind of split the harvest there. They harvested a little bit later. So the first month and a half or so, we're in Libourne at the main chateau, and then we went to Saint-Emilion. Um, so they're finally, I believe, Old Bridge Cellars is still bringing in the, the wines here to California. So you can track them down there. Cool. Really amazing rosé. Cool. I All right, Carrie, your turn. I, I, does that mean you do speak French or no? Uh, I know enough to get myself into trouble. Yeah. Okay. No, all the pieces in the cellar. Yeah, yeah. Everything. My Spanish is much better than my French. So. Okay. Yeah, I found that when I was in in France, I didn't speak any French. That um, they all took Spanish, a lot of them in school, and so Mm -hmm. that's the way we could kind of connect. Sometimes was to was to do it through Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. They're a bit more forgiving outside of Paris. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. All right. Well, Kara, what about you? Yeah. Um, so I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do as a lot of us don't, but, um, I made my way eventually to Penn state university and I have a bachelor's in horticulture and, but I've always also been interested in art as well as, as, um, science. And so I think horticulture like sort of spoke to me. Um, and as I was, 
getting my bachelor's degree, I um, worked for a professor who um, asked me to work in plant pathology. So I, I went on and got my master's in plant pathology there. And I studied um, sort of focused on viruses. So a lot of my master's work was on a plant pox virus, which was a new virus in South Eastern Pennsylvania. And um, so that was great. I was doing electron microscopy and it was getting really detailed and I was sitting in a basement. And after I, after I received that degree, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I kind of, I moved to Maryland and I did some master gardening and then I worked in restaurants and I just sort of floated around. Um, I worked for a brewery, the uh, Old Dominion and Fordham breweries in Annapolis is where I lived. And I worked there for about a year as a market manager, got laid off. And I just was like, 2008, basically, at the end of with everybody else. And there was just nothing um, out there to, to employ me. So I have an aunt who actually lives out here in Marin. And I've visited California. And I thought, well, I, I initially thought I'm going I'm to move to California. And I'm going to sell wine. I thought I could sell wine because I've been selling beer, right? I'm in this adult beverage business. So I came out, um, I quickly realized I knew nothing about wine and people in California know a lot about wine. So that was a shock, you know, it was like, wow, okay. Um, but so I got an internship at a uh, vineyard and winery in, um, in Windsor. And I basically did tasting room stuff. And also I worked my way into this thing called viticulture, which I really didn't even know it existed. But I started to quickly realize that my background was just perfectly suited for it. I mean, I had known people, I have, I have a very good friend, Fritz Westover, who's actually really well known in Texas and Southeast as a viticulturist. And um, he did viticulture. So I, I mean, I knew about it, but I never imagined myself in it. And um, I was out scouting fields one day and I was like, wait, you know, it's like, horticulture, plant pathology is one of the main parts of viticulture is, you know, figuring out pests and disease issues within vines. And also with my horticulture background, um, it just, it just clicked really quickly. And I was like, wow, this is exactly what I should be doing. And um, so I took, so I audited some courses at Davis with Dr. Walker and um, you know, I was really lucky to be able to do that. And I got my PCA license, which my education allowed me to do. So my pest control advisor's license. And that really helped to sort of catapult my career, I guess, really. Um, and I just, I've worked for a couple wineries. I worked for like Barniente and Nicole and Nicole when I started out as an assistant viticulturist and did organic farming and biodynamic farming. And then um, I worked for Claude Duval as a viticulturist. And so basically I'm at Foley now with uh, um, doing really what I love, although there's a lot of desk work as a, <laughs> it's getting less and less in the field, but that's okay. So, so um, I, I Carol, what's, what's master gardening? Well, so there are master gardener programs um, and that's not exactly what I did, but we did. Um, so, so it's basically, lay people that run programs for the, it's a county. So there's like master gardeners here in Napa and Sonoma. That's actually not what I did, but I guess I called it master gardening because I did a state gardening. Um, so it's actually not the same, but it's, I did a state gardening where we actually gardened for 
well, wealthy people essentially in Annapolis. But um, nice. so it wasn't. We didn't cut. Mind. We didn't you cut weren't. grass. You know, <laughs> things like that. So you you weren't showing up with a truck with a lawnmower and a weed whacker. You were right. We were you we, like actually yeah. doing layouts for the. Yes. We would do layouts, and we would. I mean, we wanted to make sure that the people, when they drove to their home in Annapolis, their flowers were like perfectly groomed. So that that lasted for about a year, and I was like, eh, you know, maybe not exactly my calling, but. But I can imagine that would help with biodynamic farming, though, because how everything is needs to be sort of laid out in a specific way. Well, and and it was fascinating. I mean, it was it was beautiful. It was certainly a. a, a an amazing um, job to have every day to go into these beautiful settings and see all kinds of different plants and, um, you know, natural settings. Everything was all, was very focused on being, uh, keeping everything very natural. There is a master gardener, gardener yeah. program here in Sonoma and they'll yeah. even come out and help you plant the right plants so you don't waste yeah. water and stuff like that. It's really they're actually wow. kind of nice. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing program. Um, and they have most states and cities and counties have them that I've seen. Well, so with so your background, Kara, go ahead, Bart. I was just say, so Kara, I, I have a, I have a good friend who um, we hang out at Sonoma's Best here and there, and he works for Foley, uh, Jeff Kramer. And, and Jeff, oh, yeah. when I told, when I, I told Jeff, Jeff yeah, well, so here's what he here's what he said about you is he he referred to you as being a rock star. Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so you know he 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 had very high praises and he said to um, to make sure that you were on the show and not uh, Mike alone. He said he didn't really know Mike that well, but that to make sure that you were on the show also. So that's fun. Yeah, I, I went out to his backyard and helped him um, sort of identify some of his old vines that he has back there. It was really it was kind of a fun exercise. And right. Uh, yeah. And with your background, were you the first one to discover that Semyon just loves botrytis? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. I were, I, that was a shocking moment for me, actually, because we, at, um, when I worked at Farniente, they have Dolce. And I, it was fascinating to me as a plant pathologist. It was one of my first, it was like my third year in the industry and going into those vineyards and it's just this noble rot and it, these bins of this amazing, it, it was fascinating and, and pretty, pretty awesome. Um, as both the person who's supposed to save plants and also, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. So that was my first probably experience with semi and I didn't even realize, you know, really what was happening. Um, I, I remember the first time I, when I worked at Kenwood, they had Johannesburg Riesling in the front and yeah. they saved a portion of it for late harvest. And I just, I couldn't even imagine that we were actually going to make wine after these right. dead rats that were in the bins, you know? You know, you know what was um, awesome about that too is the, the, the crews that worked, that worked that harvest were so good at, you know, knowing what was actually um, botrytis. botrytis and, and not like the good, the good rot. And that, that was fascinating to me too, is, you know, um, how good they were at sorting in the field. So, you know, um, the old Grand Crew winery, um, which now is um, where Lassiter Family Winery is. Grand Cru was started in the mid-70s um, by a couple of guys that were scientists from, um, they, went, they were at Stanford, 
Um, and, and they were making late harvest, chen, or botrytisized Chenin Blanc. And what they were actually doing is they were picking the grapes and then spraying them with the botrytis and then taking them over to Davis and putting them in the right environment in, in you know, I, I don't know how exactly they did it and actually made botrytisized Chenin Blanc from not, 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 not produced on the vine. Like, you know, have you heard anything like oh, that before? I, I mean, it obviously didn't work that well because they didn't continue to <laughs> yeah. it. I, I think uh, Nightingale, I believe that was a similar process. Uh, the Nightingale botrytisized, uh, I can't remember if it was Semillon or, or Semillon Blanc, but they, they were doing something similar where they were inoculating instead of having it come in from the field. So yeah, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yes, why but you're right. Simeon does love botrytis. It has an unhealthy relationship <laughs> with it. And why is that ultimately? It just seems so. You know the bonded. If you, my supposition is that if you look at the the clusters of Semion, they tend to be very big berries but very tightly packed and so it's sort of like zinfandel where you give all these little nooks and crannies a chance for rot to take place and it it's such a heavy cropper as well that you have much more of a there's more of that media that environment for for botrytis and other bunch rot to to really take hold um you know you see it in in zinfandel you see it in other varieties that have similar cl cluster structures like that that's interesting. It's just so tight in the in the cluster. That's it, huh? It just gives it, it more opportunity. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're if you look at say like Semillon versus, uh, well, take Cabernet for example, where it's such a loose, stringy cluster. You have much more airflow. You you dry things out. It doesn't give the botrytis a chance to really take hold as much as it does in a place like Semillon, where it's just this big, tightly packed cluster. Well, I saw that you also have carry on. Carry on, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, yeah. Well, but let's get into that, let's get into how 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 it all started though, because I think Kara, you're working for Foley, and Mike, you're working for Turley, so you got pretty good jobs. I mean, you got <laughs> you got some financial backing there. You know that those are yeah. not not um, you know fly by night operations. So, but you decide you want to make your own wine, and so how does that whole decision making process go? Yeah, so. Uh, when I got into the industry, it was with the intention of eventually making my own wine. I just wasn't quite sure how that was going to happen. And when I took the job at Turley, one of the reasons I did was because if you think about some of the winemakers who's, who've come through there, Aaron Jordan, uh, Wells Guthrie, Thomas Rivers Brown, uh, John Grant, now Tegan, these are all people who, are, who have had their own labels while they've been there. And Larry has always said that you know, if you want to make wine, that's great. I think that's a wonderful opportunity for you because you're trying to push yourself. And so the first couple of years were just kind of learning Turley. Kara and I were dating and she was at Clodeval and there was this opportunity where we could get our hands on some Syrah and Stagsley. Um, it was this vineyard she was farming that the interesting backstory there is that her boss had been farming in Australia in the 90s. There was an old vine Barossa Shiraz vineyard he absolutely loved. He grabbed cuttings, brought them back, grafted the single row and stag's leaf in this Cabernet field. And for, 
what, 15, almost 20 years, nobody did anything with it. And in 2014, we wanted to make some friends and family wine. We thought we'd have something just kind of foist on people at the holidays. Be like, here you go. Here's another bottle of our wine. And we put our hands up. We said, hey, we'll take the, the straws and someone's really using it. And it's a single row. And we made two barrels literally in a reefer container at Kara's work in Carneros. And we thought we've got a really nice wine here. And we were kind of, we decided to start blinding people on it to make sure that we weren't just, you know, blowing sunshine up our bums and thinking, oh yeah, we're, we're good. And that's where it took hold was that friends and family wine. And so that, that Syrah, we called it lost row because it was just a single row. That was one of the first commercial wines we released in 2015. Yeah, so we made the, the first two barrels in 2014 as friends and family, and then um, we realized it was delicious, and so let's give let's it a try. Wine label. We're going to be wildly successful with it. <laughs> and is that the wine, did you co-ferment with Semillon at that point? Yeah, exactly. So there was an adjacent block uh, that in the 80s had been planted to Semillon, they grafted it over to the Tiberdo. Yeah, the Tiberdo. And there was this end row where there was about four plants that never took their graft union. So they were still semion scattered amongst this row of the Tiberdo. And yeah, it was yeah. like, oh, there's some more there. You know, I know there's a bunch of grapes still on that because it would never, it didn't get picked um, on this row down the, you know, down the vineyard. Let's go grab it. And so we all just went and we all, we picked it ourselves, you know, so we just went and on a Sunday and grab these we probably got a hundred pounds so in relation it was actually a good amount and just threw it in yeah. why not <laughs> so an interesting variety to, to go from it but I, I love co-fermenting co red and white grapes and um yeah it, it that's what kind of what started it. it was it was just this really unique little situation where we happen to have these two oddities next to one another and it just made perfect sense at the time to let's throw them in together that's yeah, that's awesome. funny. I, I mean, I've never heard of Semillon being used in that way. I mean, everyone, of course, you know, thinks of Viognier and, and Syrah and the sort of the Cote model, but but I, I love it. Yeah, are, you, it's, are you continuing it's, to do that? Well, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're the small guys, and that's the reality of the industry, is that when you're the small guy, you get pushed out of a lot of things. And so after 2017, uh, we had a contract on the fruit. We wanted to keep going. Uh, but we lost the fruit. So um, it's, it's a bummer, but it's the reality of the industry. You made your it's, wine it's too like good, that. and then the people noticed this was yeah. yeah. <laughs> that they were passing on. Yeah. And, and that, that or they tell you, well, no, you, 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 we need you to take the whole block. And you're like, yeah. what am I going to do with that much fruit? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I need you to take yeah. 20 tons now. Yeah. Wait, and, what? <laughs> yeah. And, and so in 2015, luckily, so the Semion came about. So, you know, it was, um, I don't know. Did you? Well, we had a handshake agreement with uh, a grower up in Calistoga. And then. Because you knew you wanted. Yeah. To you wanted to make Semion. And then maybe three weeks before harvest that that fell through the block was contracted to um i believe it was quintessa for the illumination brand and 2015 you know low yields not as much fruit out there and you know we just the fruit we thought we were going to get there wasn't enough of it for us to get so we're scrambling i'm leaning on every contact i have trying to find something and then kara calls me 
I forget exactly when it was. And she's like, hey, I was on the Napa Valley Grape Growers website. There's a posting for Semyon. Have you seen it? I immediately called the guy. And he's like, yeah, I think I might have something for you. Tegan and I, I told Tegan about it. And he and I jumped into his truck. We drove down. We took a look at the block. And he's like, you'd be an idiot if you don't make Semyon from this. So fast forward a couple of days, I'm coming back from a pick in Contra Costa for Turley and I get a phone call from the guy and we've been playing phone tag all week trying to figure out what's going on. And he's finally like, look, if you want, if you want the fruit, you have to take all of it. And he thought there was a good five tons out there. And I'm sitting there like, you know, gulping and I'm like, okay, we'll figure out a way to, to get rid of it. 2015 being what 2015 was, there was only about not even two and a half tons out there in the block. So it was perfect. It actually ended up being a perfect stroke of luck. So that's why we ended up calling that wine Millhouse because the joke was from the Simpsons, everything's coming up Millhouse. <laughs> and, it was like within three days we had, they were like, oh, it's it, you know, it's time to pick. And so we, it was just like, well, just like that. Yeah. Like that afternoon, I was literally driving bins down to pick the next morning, yeah. just thinking, okay, what do I sign myself up for? What Kara's going to, break up with me because we're bringing in five tons of semion and now we got to get rid of it but it it's an amazing block and i i i have no question saying i think it's some of the best semion out there like i, I really do think it's a perfectly situated you know, site for variety and location and it's and it's great to make you know make wines that you want to drink because then if you don't sell it at the end of the day you always enjoy it right yeah, yeah. we happen to do a lot of that in our household <laughs> We drink a lot of our own wine. Yeah. So. <laughs> and then how did you get um, how did you get a hold of some Grenache? So the Grenache is uh, so we love Grenache and I think it's really ideally suited to California, but I think it's also planted in a lot of the wrong places. It's not a variety that can do well in poor soils or uninteresting soils like heavy clay soils. I think it really needs rocky conditions or sandy conditions. Um, you know, Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc, they can do well in those heavier clay soils. So with that in mind, in 2016, we set out to try and find some Grenache and we looked at numerous vineyards and nothing just really spoke to us. It was like, it's, it's all right. We could probably make a decent wine, but you know, uninteresting soils make uninteresting wines in my opinion. And we found this through a friend of a friend. I heard about this hillside planting in Alexander Valley and I just, I cold called the guy and I talked like a senator for a couple of weeks and he finally relented and he's like, okay, I'm going to be out in California or, you know, in your neck of the woods this time. Let's meet up. And we met up, we chatted. He's like, I like you. Let's go take a look at the block. I saw it and I was like, this is it. It's everything I want. It's hillside Grenache, rocky soils, head trained, biodynamically farmed. And I brought Kara up there and we both just said, this is it. It's, it's the most expensive fruit we work with, but it's the best fruit we work with, I think. So we're really lucky to get that. It's a, it's a handshake agreement that we've had for a few years with this guy, and I, I just love making that wine. So could you talk a little bit about Alexander Valley? Because I, I would say that we really haven't talked much about Alexander Valley, you know, on our show just because of the guests. Um, you know, I, we've always joked that Alexander Valley is like the, the desert Poor of Stephen County. Yeah, yeah, the poor, the the stepchild, the you know the Mojave Desert of Sonoma County and stuff. But you know there are very diverse soils up there, and there are some great wines coming out of there. And, and, and could just speak about it a little bit. Sure. 
Okay. Come on, Kara. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty familiar with Sonoma County in general because with Turley we do farm a number of vineyards in Sonoma and in Alexander Valley we actually own two vineyards, two old vines and vineyards. And so to your point, Bart, yeah, there's some really interesting uh, soils out there. Uh, you know, ancient riverbed cobbled soils that you walk through and it's just river rock after river rock. And it's really amazing. And it doesn't quite get the credit that I think it deserves. Um, where we happen to sit with the Alex, with the, the Grenache is if you take 128 North going towards Geyserville and where it dog legs out towards the geysers, if you start climbing up into the hills, that's where we are. And so it's this really interesting, rocky, meadow volcanic soil. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the first time I saw it, you know, you drive through these 120 year old oak trees and then boom, you pop into this vineyard that's just beautifully farmed wow. and really rocky soil. Um, it's definitely a warmer climate, so you get ripening on the earlier end. Um, depending on site, you can have some really acid driven wines, actually. Um, you know, our Grenache typically finishes naturally in the three sixes. You know, we're picking a little bit earlier, 13 to 14% alcohol. But the goal is to pick so that we don't have to acidulate. And with this site where it is in Alexander Valley, we actually have the opportunity to do that. Cool. And what is yeah. the name of the vineyard and, and who? who? <laughs> so it's a handshake agreement that the guys asked us not to really mention the vineyard name, one of those situations, because he makes his own wine. Um, but it's, it yeah it, we, we call it, that's why yeah that's why we call altus piedras so we you know high rocks so just sort of a, our own proprietary name they they learn from the semion bart they and from the uh, <laughs> from the Syrah, they're like we don't want anyone to know where we're getting this stuff at. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah well and i and i can appreciate that i told mike i said you know when i when i got some fruit from montecillo um many years ago he was mike was selling it all to uh, St. Francis and I couldn't talk about where it was from and you know, you're just happy to have the fruit, right? And yeah, um, exactly. You know, and, and a name is only is only worth what it is. It's just a name. So yeah, so it's uh, it's, a, it's a great site. I love making that wine. Um, if the price is that we don't really talk about it too much. I'm okay with that. Yeah. 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 Okay, and so speaking of a name, you got to explain so fine disregard and and John and Bart. What I first thought of when I saw the name was, you know, we've had the guys on from benevolent neglect. And I, it kind of I thought of it in the same vein, like, oh, it kind of means that we're taking care of the grapes, but we're not like overly taking care of the grapes. Like that's what I thought of it, but I didn't realize that there's actually a tie-in with rugby. That with course, rugby, yeah. Right. So, uh, so. Kara's very good at balancing me out. <laughs> if, you know, if I had my way, I'd be in 20 different vineyards and this sort of thing. And Kara's always the one bringing us back to reality. I do the books. Yeah, right. <laughs> she does the books. Um, so when we started the, uh, the company, I had all of these, what I thought were really amazing names in my head. Do you remember a few of them? Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, so one of them was Susaya. 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 So if you know Raul Perez from Spain, he's got a wine called Ultrea. And it's this old vine Mencia that's in uh, Ribera Sacra that 
is part of the Camino de Santiago. And the pilgrims on the trail used to have this uh, greeting and response. And it was, Oltrea, Esusaya. And so, Oltrea means go on. It's an old Latin phrase, go on. Esusaya means and further. And so I really liked suicide because I thought, oh, it means like push yourself further, just continue to really try and challenge yourself and keep going. Kara looked at me and was like, no one's going to get that. I mean, it's awesome. That's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. But no I, one's going to know how to pronounce it. It's far too esoteric. <laughs> so, so one of the pieces of advice I got early on in my career in wine was when when you start the company, you should make it very personal. It should be about you guys. It should be a reflection of that. And so the name should be like that as well. And so I started thinking about rugby. It's like rugby's had this outsized influence on my life. You know, some of my best friends in this world are because of rugby. I've, you know, got my start in the wine industry because of rugby. And I started trying to figure out names. And nothing really stuck until I remembered this quote. Uh, it's on a plaque at the rugby school. And it says, this stone commemorates the exploits of William Webb Ellis, who, with a fine disregard for the rules of football as played in his time, first took the ball in his arms and ran with it, thus originated the distinctive feature of the rugby game. I had to memorize that on the, on the rugby team in college. Wait, and, that's, that's part of being on the team, is you got to know that going in? Yeah, you, basically over the course of a single night with a few, more than a few beers, probably more than it's medically advisable, <laughs> you learn to remember it. So... One night, that, that quote just popped into my head, and I turned around to Karen, and I said, what do you think of fine disregard? And she said, I love it, that's it, don't change it, that's what we're going with. And I think, to your point, that sort of like with benevolent neglect, I think there is a reflection in that we try not to have too heavy of a hand in our winemaking, so it is this sort of hands-off approach, a fine disregard for the wine, if you will, but there's that cheeky reference as well to, uh, to rugby. And the label's beautiful because it's so simple, just the, the, the white background and then fine disregard. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, what do they call that, a, a minimalist type person. Yes. Unfortunately, I married someone who's more on the hoarding side, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I really love the, the cleanliness, the simplicity of the label. It's really pretty. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I promise you we didn't mock it up in word for the friends and family label. We, we, we did not do that at all. <laughs> now I, I like the minimalist label too and I, I think the idea was that we wanted something that if you see it on a shelf it catches your eye and you want to pick it up and take a look see at it see what it is yeah, yeah. hopefully yeah yeah, yeah so, and it definitely does that so how do you get started selling the wine is it um, you know the first wine that comes out are you are you which one of you is like going out to restaurants or are you trying to get distributors um, how are you like what's the plan yeah, and I have to say, I, I did, I just, you know, set up my account, and, but I was expecting to be able to buy some wine, but I, do <laughs> we'll I have to wait until you guys part. tell me what we can buy? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah we, we do about three to 400 cases a year, um, and we generally center it around two releases, one in the spring, one in the fall. We just wrapped up our fall release. Um, and we do have distribution in California, in Texas, uh, on the East Coast, and a few other places. So it's, it's that mix between the two. Um, it's, 
Yeah. 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 Well, so right, we're, we are actually thinking about going to an open store model because of, I mean, basically because of COVID, we, are, you know, we didn't get any distribution in 2020, um, a little bit in California. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to rethink some things like a lot of people are doing for, for 2021. So, so we may go to that um, open store model, but you know, we thought we'd go by allocation just because we both do have full-time jobs too. And sort of managing a constant sort of influx or hopefully, you know, up and down and it, it sort of was unfeasible for us to, to think about doing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think we were lucky enough at the beginning in 2015 to know some people. And I think because of uh, Tegan working with our California distributor Revel, um, <clears throat> we were able to get an introduction and show our, our, our Syrah and our semi on and they loved it and they took us on right away. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's no amazing. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, doing the model you're doing, it, it's a great, it's a great chance because you get people's attention. If they want the wine, they know they got to be ready for it. And, and then you kind of know where your sales are and, you know, and then, you know, if you have uh, extra that you can get it out to your distributors and push them to get a little bit more, or yeah. you can do an, a secondary offering or, or reopen something. And, and you're right. I mean, managing an open storefront is, um, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. And, it's a and, challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's not necessarily the most glamorous, uh, you know, part of the business, you know, all those, the bookkeeping and the keeping up with distributors and all that administrative work has to get done. And we're just a two person operation. You know, we, it's, it, like Kara said, she does the books, she does all the finances, we work with distributors, you know, making the wine, it's all falls on us. And when you've got full-time day jobs like we do, it's, it can be a challenge to make sure it all gets done. Right. Now, Bart, when I was on the website, I saw Grenache and Semyon, but I didn't see Mataro, but I have heard that you guys have worked with that in the past. We do, yeah. So what's up on the website right now is just, you know, the current offering that we just finished. Uh, we do make a single Mataro. It's from the Pato Vineyard in Contra Costa. Uh, it's farmed by our good friends over at Bedrock, Morgan Twain Peterson okay. and company. And um, we, as we were expanding, we were trying to think of like, what could we do to expand? And Mataro is like one of those wines that we started drinking a few years ago and fell in love with it. And Morgan was kind enough to say, I've got some, some tonnage out at Pato, you know, if you're interested. And uh, it's, it's an amazing little vineyard. You know, it's a little bit farther inland from Evangelo and some of the other more well-known vineyards in Contra Costa, but it's still on that really fine beach-like soil. And I was talking to David Gates from Ridge about it because they had made Mataro from uh, Pato for a few years in the late 90s. And he said, you should absolutely do it. It was the best thing that came off that vineyard. Um, vines are planted sometime before prohibition. I don't know the exact date, um, but it's, it's this beautiful perfumed complex wine that, you know, is, we love it because it's such a unique, unique offering for us. Um, it's, it's very different from a lot of the other Mataros out in Contra Costa, um, just because it is a little bit more inland. You don't get quite the same level of acidity and freshness in the wine as you do, say, from Evangelo, but you get more perfume and structure, which I really love. Um, and the Sonoma County Grenache that we made in 2018 
the blend was about 90% Grenache and 10% Mataro. And I think the Mataro is really what lifted that aromatic profile so much for us in that wine. Interesting. Yeah, you know, how much so did, for, how much that, sorry, how much did you make of that? How, what was your production on the Mataro? So the Mataro, we typically get one to two tons a year. Um, so it's anywhere from 75 in a down year to 120 cases in a, in a good year. And that's kind of typical for a lot of our wines. So just, you know, for our listeners out there, um, while you're listening to this, if you want to know, it's findisregardwine.com. And Mike is find disregard on um, Instagram also. So we encourage people to get on the website and, and sign up um, for the mailing list and, and follow Mike uh, on Instagram. And um, yeah, th- th- try these, get out and try these wines. Yeah, sure. Thank you. <laughs> well, so if people are, let's say people are living around here, is there a place that I can pick up the wines without having to go through you guys? Like, is there any storefronts? Yeah, so I know that uh, Complin here in Napa uh, carries the wines. Um, Cadet also carries the wines. Uh, and I believe Backroom in Napa has carried the wines. In Sonoma, I'd have to confirm with our uh, with our distributor where they've placed. I know we have had placements over there. I believe, Bart and I, you, were chat- you and I were chatting about Sonoma's best. I think they've carried the wines in the past. Yep. So, um, yeah. Uh, definitely talk to us and we can find out where it is. And, you know, there are places locally. That was something really important for the two of us is to make sure that we have the wines in the community because this is where we live and work and it's home. So we want the wines to be here as well. Yeah. The first time I tried the wines, I got them from backroom wines. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. They've been great supporters for us over the years. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a good outfit. Bart, how did you find out about Find Disregard though? Um, I believe that I just was cruising the shelves at Backroom and, um, you know, always in the search for Grenache, trying to learn about Grenache and the fact that it was Sonoma County. And then Semillon is, you know, a variety that, um, well, the Semillon, I can tell you because I had um, the last year's credit card and um, uh, at the time, and I was able to buy a couple bottles. We tried them in a, in a lineup there. Um, and oh, so that okay. was, that was a previous, a previous life, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, falling online, um, and then, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a Turley fan and, and get, getting to know, I got to know Tegan because of Shannon Blanc and, you know, you just put things together and then all of a sudden there's Mike. Um, and so, you know, added it. Always lurking in the background. <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> And, and it's hard standing behind Tegan because Tegan's got broader shoulders than you do. Um, he does. So. And he's such a mild-mannered, quiet man, too. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually I'm following you on Instagram, and, and I see a picture of Tegan, and you got some Sandlands bottles, and then a big bottle of Chartreuse, that BEP, that stuff is amazing. It is. And it seems to be, you know, working at the Girl in the Fig, we always, I always would bring that bottle in. And it's not cheap, like yeah. for purchase for a restaurant. And inevitably, the people that would come and sit at the bar and order were always winemakers. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah uh, what is it about chartreuse and winemakers? I mean, I be quite honest. I don't know anyone that drinks chartreuse that isn't a winemaker. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We're, I have no idea. <laughs> I, you know, I think you've got to be a little touched in the head to want to make wine. 
in general, and then you gravitate towards something like chartreuse, which the aromatics, you, I think you either love them or you hate them. Right. And I, I know I definitely, I love it. And that particular photo you were talking about was the night before uh, both of us were picking our old line Carignan out in Lodi. And that looks that like was Keegan's it. house too, the house that he was redoing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a bit of a rough morning for both of us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Brian and I actually did when we interviewed um, Tegan for the show, we actually went out to Lodi and he took us around and showed us vineyards. And then um, it, I could see where it'd be very comfortable just to sit in that house around that table um, and uh, just drink all afternoon and yeah. maybe go down to, you know, um, What's that little bar, bar around the corner? Yeah. No, no place. <laughs> no place. Yeah. No, that was, uh, no, that was, that was a, that was a fun night. We, um, T and I were chatting about it. He was already out in Lodi for another pick and he called me up and he said, well, instead of you getting up at like three o'clock in the morning to go, you know, go out and pick your grapes, you want to just come down the night before we'll have dinner and you can get a good night's sleep. You know, and then pick your grapes, and then we'll head, both head up to the winery. Like, sounds like a great idea. What what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, very sensible. <laughs> I knew, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> One o'clock so rolls around, and we're yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> This ain't my first rodeo, and yeah. I, I I do think, yeah, a good time was had by all. So, uh, and I mean, let's face it, rugby players in general have pretty well used livers. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, well. I mean, you know, we're drinking on Christmas morning, and I tell people, or Christmas Eve morning, and I tell people all the time, you can't drink all day if you don't start first thing in the morning. So, <laughs> right, Cabernet right. and Colgate. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to give a quick shout out to Roger Randall because because of him, I think it's because of him when he came out to visit, he went to the Turley Tasting Room in in Amador. Mm -hmm. and, and got us all bottles of Barbera, which we mm. had no idea existed. Yeah. No, it's, you know what? It, it wasn't that. He, he went to, he has a connection with a woman that works at Turley St. Helena, right? The, um, I, I think he had gone up to Amador. When, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a good bottle of Barbera. Mike Don't let no Max get in the way of good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that Barbera is pretty amazing. And Barbera is one of those varieties that does incredibly well out in the foothills. Um, you know, it's, I think it's got a lot of potential out there. It's, it's one of those varieties that I think in a few years, when more people start working with it, people are going to realize that California Barbera from the foothills is, is a pretty amazing wine. Yeah, because it just, for some reason in Sonoma, I, I know a lot of people have tried, it just doesn't seem to make great wines. But I know that people see potential in Barbera for California, but maybe just not in Sonoma County. I don't know. The only one I know who makes it is Imagery, right? No. Well, they, they did. They got it from, I think, uh, Sarah's Ranch right, right down the road. Um, but I, I think Peter Mathis is the, the one I was talking to one day, and he said... You know, he'd love to make Barbera, but he just hasn't found any really good sites in Sonoma County to make wine from. So, so the 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 Benzigers for imagery um, used to get it from the Sarah's Ranch, um, and then also from um, Harry Merlot up in Dry Creek Valley. Um, as, and, as name in the wine business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think at least during the times that I was there, 
Um, I think it had more to do with how we were approaching making the wine than the, the grapes. You know, I, 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 I think that things like Barbera that aren't commonly made, you have to open up your mind and how you make the wine to it and not just make it like you make Zinfandel or you can't make it like you make Cabernet. Um, you, 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 there has to be a learning process. And I, and I think a lot of that it would be, would be true. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, what's the old adage about Barbera is uh, it's saving grace is acidity. And, you know, you can, you can get Barbera at 30 degrees bricks. That's still got like a 3.1 pH that you're looking at. All right. I, I don't know how we can ferment this. I don't know how it's going to go through ML, but there we go. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, tr I don't want to say it's a tricky one to work with once you, obviously a lot of people have mastered it, but it, you're right. You can't just approach it like you would Cabernet or Zinfandel or something like that. It's, it's, it's a definitely a different mindset when you're working with something like Barbera. You know, and for that matter, like Semyon too. I mean, Semyon's not a high acid variety. It's not an aromatic variety. It crops heavy. We talked about its, its love life with botrytis, but so you can't just approach it like you're going to make, you know, Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. It takes a very different idea about what am I going to do with Semyon. So, and I think that's part of the learning curve for winemakers is realizing that not every variety is the same. You have to approach things differently. Yeah. How did you do the Semillon? Because it, you, it, um, there's no ML, right? Didn't you just... This is full ML. Yeah. Oh, it, so, is. it is full ML. It is full ML. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, I realized very quickly that we can't do the Hunter Valley style of Semillon where like you pick super early, uh, there's no ML, you do, you know quick tank aging and then you bottle early and then you wait to release for a few years. We don't have the soil. We don't have the vine material. Uh, you know, we don't have the climate to do that. You know, they can pick physically ripe fruit at under 11% alcohol, you know, for 11% alcohol and the wines are amazing. Um, so with that in mind, we were trying to figure out what's a California style we can do. And I started thinking about it and I said, well, let's do some barrel fermenting because I've seen that done in, in Bordeaux. I, we did it ourselves. And then that first year we were trying to figure out, well, do we want to do, um, you know, full ML, partial ML, no ML, and the wine just raced through ML on its own. And at that point we realized that's what it wants to do. Okay. So the, the winemaking approach is pretty minimal intervention. It's a whole cluster pressing, goes into uh, a mixture of using neutral French oak and some stainless steel, natural ferment spontaneously for primary and secondary, surly aging for 14 months, and then we bottle and find unfiltered. Wow, so surly aging for 14 months, and then, and then and bottle, yeah, I could tell it was unfiltered because there was definitely, if you hold it up to the light, you can see little, and it's not big particles, it's just little tiny. Uh, That's slight haze, yeah, yeah. So we actually do, I, I told the slight lie because now we do start to filter the wine just for that turbidity issue alone, just because the wine is going out into the market more. And I think the consumer wants to see a, that, you know, crystal clear type of white wine. So, and it, that would set the suggestion of Tegan to give him credit. He said, I think you should filter this and I think it's going to help tighten things up. And the 19 that we just bottled, I'm in love with it already. And usually it takes me a long time to, to reach that point. Mike, is it a is it a sterile filtration or is it just a like a polish? Just a polish, quick cross flow, and then it doesn't get sterile. Uh, it doesn't go through the sterile filters on the truck. It's just okay. just take out that that little bit of a 
a little bit of haze, if you will. So. And Bart and I have had this conversation because, you know, I'm on the wine buying side for, you know, when I, wherever I'm working. And, and I don't mind when I have it, when I'm selling bottles or, or if it's people that are in your wine club, I think it's a, they sort of know your history or you can have that conversation of this is why the wine looks like that. But when you're, when it's by the glass wines, when it's sort of out, people are ordering it and there's no, there's no conversation being had. Then it, then it becomes sort of one of those things that, you know, you got, once in a while you have people send it back, there's something wrong with this, or, and it's like, no, there's nothing wrong with the wine. It's just not a commercial product that you're using right. out on the market. So, you know, sometimes you just, yeah, unfortunately, because I love the texture of it. Yeah, thank you. I, that's, I think, Semyon's uh, calling card in California is you get that textural mid palate. Um, and, I always tell people like, if you like Chardonnay, but you want the, you don't want the big oaky buttery Chardonnays, this is a great alternative because you're going to get texture and mouthfeel and it's going to fit that profile. I mean, uh, that's one of the reasons why I love working with a variety is because it is something different and unique that I think in California, we can do some really crazy cool things with it. And it's got a long history here in the state too. And so I, I kind of feel like we're honoring that tradition. So are you actively seeking out more Semillon from different sites? Uh, I've, I've always got feelers out there, but we we have a, a contract for this group for a few more years. Um, we'll see what the growers want to do. I, they've been redeveloping the vineyard uh, because of uh, Pierce's disease, which is unfortunate, but is rampaging throughout the state. Um, if there's an interesting site, I'm certainly willing to take a look at it. Um, part of it is our production as well, is that you know making 120 cases of Semillon is a pretty good pretty good spot for us. But, you know, if Monte Rosso ever became available. I was going to say, have you reached out to Brene and said, hey. <laughs> so, um, so when we, before we ever made our first wine together, I had a, I had a bee in my bonnet to like, I want to make some white wine. And this is probably like eight years ago, shortly after we started dating. And I was trying to find Semyon. And Kara introduced me to a person who was making wine at, Paradise Ridge, I think it was. Yeah, Paradise Ridge in, in Sonoma. And he knew one of the higher ups at Gallo for Monte Rosso. And so I ended up just emailing him out of the blue and he said, Sure. If you wanna if you want some fruit, it's forty five hundred dollars a ton. If not, you know, no worries. If you want to take more than one ton, we can get you down to maybe thirty five hundred dollars. And I thought it was gonna be like a thousand, maybe two thousand. And I was like, ah, my my budget sorry so yeah, that's a 60 dollar bottle of semillon right exactly it's like i don't know how we'd ever sell that so yeah right so but yeah money roast is an amazing site if it ever became available i'd i'd certainly be love to see if we could work <laughs> with it but we shall see i know a lot of that fruit's already contracted so yeah yeah there's a there's a couple people i had a view with that that, sure. that probably aren't going <laughs> to let go of it unfortunately yeah <laughs> I can, I can try and sweet talk Morgan, but I don't think he'd be willing to, to give up awesome. a ton for me. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so what else are you interested in working with, um, you know, besides the, the Grenache and the Semillon and Mataro? Well, uh, so we, in 2020, we actually got very lucky. Um, I used to always joke with Kara because she works at Foley and, you know, she takes, um, you know, she's got the, uh, uh, the Shalom Vineyard and they've got old vine Shannon. And I used to always say, oh, go check on her Shannon, see how it's doing. And in 2020, 
she came home one day and she's like, if you want Shannon, it's available. And I was like, wait, the young vines or the old vines? She's like, the old vines. And I was so excited to tell him. It was like, <laughs> I was like, Christmas came early this year. Yeah. <laughs> How long has so, Foley owned the Shalom property? Um, I think it's been five or six years now. Oh, I had no it, idea. Yeah, mm. so it was a couple years before I started, and I started in 2016. So, um, yeah, still farmed by the same, um, by Richard Bohr. He's amazing. He's been there for 25 years. He lives, like, right near the property. Same crew is still there. And uh, we actually worked really hard to re to revive that vineyard. We're, um, it was in pretty bad shape. I mean, it's still not the best in the best shape, but we're, we were working really hard to get that Shannon sort of back on track. And we actually grafted over, grafted some more Shannon. It's you know, obviously it's young, but it's, it does so well in that spot. And so we have a little bit of uh, more that we're growing up there right now. Okay. So we got another player in the Shannon game, Bart. So <laughs> I, I was going to say, can you put me on the, on the short list or the long list also? <laughs> I know oh, we got of course, of course. <laughs> we got Hardy Wallace, we got Pax, we got Tegan, um, uh, Leo Steen, Bart Hansen, and now you guys are joining the game. Now tell us how did you treat the wine? What were you guys how did you guys uh, what was fermentation and Yeah, so we approached it pretty similarly to um, uh, to the Semion. And so basically, you know, we got less than a ton of it. So rather than destemming you know, we just went direct pressing um, and then went into two barrels, uh, used French oak, same sort of regime, uh, spontaneous fermentation, went through ML naturally, and I actually just sulfured it uh, two days ago, finally finished ML. So it'll be the same sort of thing, like, you know, surly aging for about 12 to 14 months, pretty similar to what Tegan does. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, I, I don't have that many tricks in my book for, for making wine. It's, it's a pretty minimal interventionist approach. You know, we're not ideologues, but if something goes pear-shaped, we'll step in. But here, the wine just fermented beautifully and then went through ML. It's the second one to go through ML this year for us. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun watching it develop in, in barrel. When are we going to have like a Chenin Blanc, like, uh, you know, some sort of symposium or something? Well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally think that'd be a great thing to do. We need to come up with our own group. You know, Tegan and, and that group of guys, there was a lunch group that went on there for a few years uh, before Christmas where they'd get together and taste each other's wines. And, and I got invited to it a couple times and, um, uh, it, it, it's a great learning opportunity. And, and as there are more and more people jumping into um, the Shannon um, uh, market, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, I, my first year was 09 and I had a really hard time selling it. And um, you know, people would look at me sideways expecting it to be the first couple of years I put dry on it. Cause I wanted to make sure people knew it was dry. Right. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. and I was, and I was horrified to think that it would go through ML and the first year I got the fruit from um, up, up in Mendocino, the con I, I was able to put it in some concrete and it went through ML immediately. And, and I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Um, Brian and I like tasted those barrel, those samples for 
well, for a year. Um, and then after that, everything's just, as you say, is gone through ML on its own. Um, even in barrels that were supposed to be non-ML barrels, it just seems that it wants to do it. But I have to say, I think it, I think it needs to go through ML because it adds to the complexity. Um, yeah. It really, it really, really does something for the wine. I, I think that's absolutely right. You get that extra layer of complexity in the wine that you ordinarily wouldn't have. And not that I don't mind, you know, blocked ML, partial ML. I mean, one of our semions was always that way. It was partial ML, but there's just something about having that full ML that gives you that malactic fermentation that brings the mouthfeel and the texture out. And it's what I really love. And when I was thinking about, you know, wines that I love drinking, textural white wines inevitably rise to the top of that list. You know, I think Kara can attest that like for the last year, like all I've been doing is buying white burgundy and those textural white wines and just absolutely loving them. Yeah, yeah. Wow, tough life drinking all that white burgundy. <laughs> I, I'm not buying, I'm not buying that DRC or anything like that. It's a lot of Burgo and Blanc and things like that. But, yeah. you know, the right producer, you can get some beautiful wines. So. Yeah, where do you guys shop for wine? Kind of all over. I buy a lot from our friends. Um, you know, so buy Tegan's wines, uh, John and uh, John Lockwood with Enfield Wine Company, Matt Nauman, you know, uh, Bertus from Belong Wine Company. So love supporting them. We shop locally a lot from Compline and Cadet and um, and Backroom. I probably spend too much time on Winebid. Uh, I inevitably start tracking like 90 different wines that week and start thinking about, okay, if someone starts bidding on this wine, do I want to bid too? And if not, you know, what's my other, my other wine that week? And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, it's, he's like, I'm checking wine bid. <laughs> you on your phone? Well, <laughs> you want wine or not? <laughs> hey Mike, you know, uh, so for the past few weeks, we've been opening up um, questions to our listeners Sure. And um, and we had a listener that um, had a question that pertains to you. Um, and I'm going to read it so I can get it right. So I hope you can stay with me for a second. Of course. He's wondering why Team USA have never been able to convert their significant resources and deep pool of talent to being a big presence on the world stage of rugby. Wow. And then, and then the other question from him was, <laughs> or – why Australia haven't been able to win a World Cup in over 20 years? Do you, do you have any comments on that? Would this be a South African gentleman who uh, <laughs> may or may not have uh, funny hair? <laughs> wow, <laughs> yes. Actually, it is him. Interesting, interesting. So he, his fatal flaw, first we should start drinking bourbon if we're going to really get into this. Because <laughs> Team U.S., the Eagles drive me to drink every year. Um, his fatal flaw is that the U.S. doesn't have the deepest talent pool. We have much more limited resources than, say, South Africa. Um, we are getting there. We're getting better. The youth game is on the rise. There's a professional league that's very nascent, but it's starting. Um, the future is bright. Uh, as for the Australians, Near and dear to my heart, I played rugby in Sydney in 2003. Um, so the Wallabies are, I, I love them, but they also drive me to drink. Uh, I would say it's the dodgy Kiwis, the All Blacks, who cheat incessantly that have kept the Australians down. The South Africans would be number two on that list. So, I mean, this is just science. It's fact. So, um, 
Well, and and so you know, and and we'll give you a chance to get him also because you know Petrus, he held out on us, Brian. In that, um, you know, he's making some Chenin Blanc um, also uh, for tank winery, and he and he gets oh. it from the Enlightenment Mountain um, Vineyard, which is the same as um, Buddha's Dharma, depending on you know if you're if you go with the, the monks wishes, I think the monks don't want us to call it um, Buddha's Dharma anymore. They want to call it enlightenment mountain, but um, totally held out on us, sent it to MJ Toller, um, you know, oh, um, okay. shout out to the black wine guy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I guess someday we'll have to go over to Calistoga and pick some up ourselves. Okay. No good. There to spend sale. All right. You know, I hate to call him a um I hate to call him a foreigner because he is now um he a citizen. Is. So and well, he did seem to know he did seem to know some good American history. Um, you know, he actually knew we had a podcast that we did or we had a little winemakers podcast happy hour for Prohibition Day, and he knew more about Prohibition in the United States than all of the Yanks. Um, on the call, so well, part isn't that always the case, though? You know, especially be, when immigrants come here and they're forced to learn all these things to become a citizen. Whereas, you know, we're doing it in school, and maybe we're listening, and maybe we're not. But for them, it's a little more. There's a little more motivation to learn about American history. I think that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 Well, the the test is no joke. It's you know that that citizenship test. I mean, if you look through the questions, I mean, some of them. I'd like to think I know some about history, and I'm looking through, and I'm like. Huh, okay. I gotta reach deep back into the brain for that one. No, you you know when you watch late night television, I think it's Jimmy Kimmel who goes out on the street and I mean they just ask simple questions. They'll put a map up with no names and say, Where's Africa or where's Brazil? And it's like ninety percent of people have no clue. So uh, there's part of our education system and and Got some problems. Kara's parents are teachers, so I think they would uh, heartily agree with you on that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so Kara, since we know that you're the you're the back of the house and uh, make sure that everybody gets paid and probably make sure everybody gets their wines, um, for people that would sign up for the mailing list, um, when is the next release, and um, and what's going to be offered? Well, so it kind of varies depending on what based mostly what the wine is doing what are you know what where we think the wine is and what's ready good answer um, by the way yeah <laughs> that's that is you know but but generally we'll do spring and a fall so honestly it'll be sometime this spring uh april yeah. march april perhaps uh, i don't know exactly what we're yeah. putting up so that's it's still kind of tbd yeah. um you know, we bottled in 2019 Semyon, uh, Grenache, Mataro, Carignan, and a Syrah from the Haynes Vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've kind of tasted the wines since we've uh, bottled them, and I think probably we're looking at Grenache and Syrah definitely for more of a fall release because they just have so much more structure to them. The Carignan and the Mataro might be early with the Semyon. Um, that's the tentative plan, TBD. Um, and then like Kara said, there's a good chance we'll open up the storefront, uh, come January and just, you know, let folks start opening or, you know, getting into the library a bit more. Um, like we said, distribution, you know, wasn't there. So let's give people some more wine and hopefully it's to better days ahead for all of us. 
And I mean, some of that wine, some of our wine, you know, we still have, especially the Semillon, and people, I, I, people say, well, how can I, a 2016 white wine, what? And we're like, oh my gosh, it's better now than it was three years ago. So we, it's still, there. all the Semillons are still showing really well, and, um, you know, we'll see what, what we can find to offer. That's a weird mindset. Bart, we should talk about that one day on the podcast, not necessarily here, but how, you know, for me selling wine on the floor, it's, it's strange how people gravitate towards the newer vintages for some reason. And I'm always struggling to sell um, older, you know, older vintages of Chardonnay or even s some rosés, I think, that have had a yeah. couple of years in the bottle are amazing. But there's something about it where people just want like the newest thing. Well, yeah. and I think, I think the American public has been, you know, tricked into you know buying whatever it's is, this it's the iphone right. bart yeah it, it's you know what what it is and then you know we as winemakers and, and people in the business we're so used to drinking what's in the cellar you know what we're working on um uh and then what you need to sell right and and yeah. you do you lose track of um of it i know there have been wines that i've felt that i had to quit selling for some reason because you know to release the next wine and really i think if you leave the wine in the barrel a little bit or in the um, bottles a little bit longer they always seem to just shine more and more yeah. um not to be in a rush to just get Absolutely. it out yeah i i think for us you know we're a small operation if we had the financial wherewithal to hold the wines back another year or two before releasing we would but there is that issue of cash flow that you've got to get, you know, some type of revenue generated. Um, and I'd also say that I think the American palate, like we like sweet things. And so younger wines tend to have more of that really bright, fresh primary fruit, especially in California. Right. Whereas, you know, I start, you open up wines from say like 10 years ago and they're starting to take that turn in more tertiary characteristics and they're beautiful. They're lovely. I mean, we drink, we don't drink as much Napa Cab anymore, but like the 2011 vintage, which I told people I don't stock up on it because in 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be incredible. That seems to be the only cab that we really want to drink right now. And it's, it's, yeah, it, it's definitely a different mindset and it's, yeah. I, I don't know why exactly, but you know, I'm glad I don't have to try and sell wine on the floor to somebody like that. Yeah. Well, and I'm actually, I'm sitting on two cases of Bart's 2016 Chenin Blanc and I took it off the wine list when, when we reopened in July because I actually want to, I want to serve it in a, like a, in a, in a dining room setting. Like I think the wine yeah. deserves, to, you know, cause number one, it was going to go in plastic cups out at the pool, which I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and now that, and then even the, since we reopened, I, I just want it to be back to normal where I can like showcase it instead yeah, of, yeah. you know, just be like, Oh yeah, this is a, you know, another wine by the glass. So I, I'd rather have people just drinking it out of the bottle than plastic. Well, <laughs> <laughs> than out of plastic. <laughs> Long straw, I just go for it. Yeah. It was a rough summer for selling wine, I tell you what. It, yeah. It was just not fun seeing a lot of wine go in plastic cups. Um, was Gave me the shivers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good wines, too. <laughs> I know, yeah. Well. So, all right. Well, got this, a week left of this year, right? And right. and uh, and thank you guys for taking. I know it's a you know it's a holiday, Christmas Eve um, day. Thank what are you, you guys doing tonight? Time. Making dinner. We're just gonna have a nice dinner, the two of us. Um, and they got a fire going there. We do, right? Yeah. Our fire. <laughs> uh, 
we pork chops, some really nice, nice pork chops, um, and beet salad, some beet salad, and nice. maybe some bubbles. And we so uh, we've got the 16 semion open. So I was going to open up your 16 semion Bart, do a little side by side, and then you know probably uh, drink more than is medically advisable until the wee hours of the morning and wake up and there's Christmas. Here we go. <laughs> what Santa brings us. Yeah. All right. So, and I am definitely getting on your mailing list. So hopefully in, in January, if you guys do decide to open up the, um, the storefront, um, can get some wines in January. Um, I want to get a shout out to, to MJ. If you follow him on Instagram at black wine guy, he's doing his own, you know, our show that we did last week was we kind of covered all the top, 100 from uh, we did Esther Mobley's 12 wines that sort of shaped the year and we went over that and then MJ you know of course copying from his mentors uh, decided that he was going to do the top the top 10 wines of the year and so I think he's on number three I know he's going to kill me for saying that <laughs> I'm interested to see where he's going because I know that he's received you know your wine and Sam's wine so I, I'm I'm really I got my fingers crossed, Bart. Uh, I, you know what? <laughs> I've been listening to the podcast and following him before he started his podcast, and and he drinks really well. Like he's got some great wine. So I'm I'm not expecting any of our wines to be on that list. <laughs> you know, I think the, right. I think the bottle that James Molesworth probably brought him probably is on it. And um, yeah, yeah, he he drinks pretty good. So, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Awesome. It's all good. Awesome. <laughs> all right, you guys. Well, you guys. Thank you so yeah. much. So nice to meet you both, and hopefully yeah. uh, in person someday. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. So one thing that I think Brian and I want to do, because we've always, um, we, Brian and I used to go out on the road to do um, tastings. Um, usually what we would do is we'd gather with you guys. To do shows, yeah. To do shows. Yeah. Um, we would gather with you guys to do a show either at Sam's place or at my house here or something. Um, but Brian and I like to go out and visit people. So once we can all do this and um, uh, be in the same room or sit outside uh, under a tree, we'll definitely want to come over and do this again and taste the wines together with you guys. Awesome. We'd love it. Awesome. And we just so happen to have a pool in our backyard. So just just throwing that out there, you know. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Bart, Bart wears a banana hammock, unfortunately. <laughs> no shame. There's no shame in that. Um, he kind of looks like a rugby player, too. <laughs> rugby is a game for uh, all shapes and sizes. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's true. So. You'd be good in the scrum. See, I know, I know stuff. Yeah, there you go. The dark arts of the front row. Yeah. yeah, that went right over his head there. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Yeah, well, thank you. And I would say anyone who's interested in signing up, uh, even though we haven't opened up the storefront, if they want to email us, we're more than happy to, to start slinging some wine. So by all means. There you go. Podcast listeners, you just got the okay. Go ahead and reach out directly and get a taste. Yes. Awesome. Use our hospitality. So, And thank awesome. you so much for having us. This was a yeah. lot of fun. Thank you. Thank awesome, you, guys. guys. Yeah, and Happy New Year to you. Right. Yeah. Happy, New Year. Happy New Year. All right, listeners, if you want to check out some of our past episodes, you can go to radiomisfits.com backslash the winemakers. Follow us at uh, Winemakers Pod on Instagram. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Bart, we're, I think we're talking to uh, Laura from Inconu um, next week, and then that'll be the last show of the year, I think. And then we'll, um, we'll see what happens in 2021. Yeah, they're stacking up already. So 
That's um, great. Thank you to all the listeners. And I'll just uh, leave it with uh, drink more Grenache and drink more Semillon. And, and there uh, you go. And right. and Chenin Blanc, right? <laughs> uh, and yeah. a few bottles of Chenin Blanc. <laughs> yeah. All right. A lot more right, semi on first. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>